Dermatology Snapshots, February 22. Paper 1. Adverse Pregnancy and Maternal Outcomes in Women with Hydradenitis Suprativa. Fitzpatrick et al., Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Why we chose this paper. Hydradenitis suprativa is associated with a number of comorbidities, which may have an important impact on pregnancy outcomes. This area is poorly explored, making this an important paper. Study aim and design. A retrospective analysis was undertaken, comparing outcomes of hydradenitis suprativa pregnancies to control pregnancies, with the aim of exploring the risk of adverse pregnancy and maternal outcomes in hydradenitis suprativa. What were the main findings? Compared to control pregnancies, N equals 64,218, hydradenitis suprativa pregnancies, N equals 1,862, had a higher risk of spontaneous abortion, 15.5% versus 11.3%, preterm birth, 9.1% versus 6.7%, gestational diabetes, 11.6% versus 8.4%, gestational hypertension, 6.1% versus 4.4%, preeclampsia, 6.6% versus 3.8%, and caesarean section, 32.4% versus 27.1%. Though confounding comorbid conditions may explain this after accounting for comorbidities, hydradenitis suprativa pregnancies remained independently associated with spontaneous abortion gestational diabetes and caesarean section. Limitations. This was a retrospective design which has its own limitations and results should be interpreted with caution. It didn't look at the correlation with hydranitis suprativa severity. What's the take-home message? This paper suggests that pregnant women with hydranitis suprativa are at increased risk of some adverse and pregnancy-related maternal outcomes. Hydradenitis suprativa patients may require closer collaboration with medical obstetricians, but further studies are needed. Paper 2. Infections in children and adolescents treated with dupilumab in paediatric clinical trials for atopic dermatitis. A pooled analysis of trial data. Pala et al. Paediatric Dermatology. Why we chose this paper. Patients with eczema have increased risk of infections overall. When dupilumab originally launched, we were advised to consent patients for an increased overall risk of infections. This has not been borne out in later studies in adults, but similar evidence-based reassurance in children is needed. Study aim and design. To describe the infection rates using pooled data from two 16-week randomised placebo-controlled phase 3 trials. What were the main findings? Comparing placebo, N equals 205, and dupilumab, N equals 407, overall infection rates were lower with dupilumab. 184 patients with greater than one infective rate per 100 patient years versus placebo, 227 greater than one infection rate per 100 patient years. Total skin infections were less frequent in dupilumab-treated groups versus placebo. Placebo, 67 
events per 100 patient years. Dupilumab, 36 events per 100 patient years. The RR for total skin infection, hepatic and non-hepatic, in dupilumab versus placebo was 0.54, where P is 0.001. Specifically, conjunctivitis was more common with dupilumab, but staph infections were more common with placebo. Limitations. This was an industry-funded trial. Trial data was retrospectively reviewed for these new endpoints. Of 407 dupilumab patients, only 65% received approved doses. What's the take-home message? Reassuringly, this data suggests that dupilumab treatment in children with atopic dermatitis does not increase overall infection risk and reduces rates of skin infections compared with placebo. Paper 3. Biological disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs may mitigate the risk of psoriatic arthritis in patients with chronic plaque psoriasis, Gizondi et al., and also rheumatology disease. Why we chose this paper? Psoriasis typically precedes the development of psoriatic arthritis, but an important question in the biologics era is whether proactive treatment of psoriasis can delay or prevent psoriatic arthritis. Study aim and design. A retrospective, non-interventional study aiming to compare incidence of psoriatic arthritis in patients with moderate to severe chronic plaque psoriasis who have been treated continuously with biological disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs or biological DMARDs for at least five years versus those who have had at least three courses of narrowband UVB phototherapy. Included patients did not have psoriatic arthritis at the outset as assessed using the Early Arthritis for Psoriatic Patients questionnaire plus rheumatologist review where indicated. What were the main findings? 464 psoriatic patients were included. Biologics DMARDS N equals 234 and narrowband GVB N equals 230. Biologics DMARD treatments included 17% infliximab, 7% etanercept, 29% adalumumab, 21% ustekinumab, and 26% secukinumab. The annual instance rate of psoriatic arthritis was 1.20 cases, 95% confidence in interval 0.77 to 1.89, versus 2.17 cases, 95% confidence interval 1.53 to 3.06 100 patients per year in the biologics DMARDS versus phototherapy group respectively. Hazard ratio 0.29, that's 0.12 to 0.70, P equals 0.006. Variables independently associated with higher risk of psoriatic arthritis were older age, nail psoriasis and psoriasis duration greater than 10 years. Biological DMARD treatment was associated with a lower risk of incident psoriatic arthritis. Adjusted HR 0.27, 0.11 to 0.66. Limitations. Is it applicable? 
This was a non-randomised retrospective open confounding bias and selection for UVB versus Biologics DMARDs may be related to other factors, e.g. psoriasis extent. Also, they were unable to sub-analyse the impact of different Biologics DMARDs due to the small sample size. What's the take-home message? Biologics to treat psoriasis may reduce the incidence of psoriatic arthritis, and perhaps this could become a factor in determining treatment escalation, especially perhaps in patients with risk factors for psoriatic arthritis, such as older age, nail psoriasis, and psoriasis duration of greater than 10 years. Paper 4. The spread of resistant tinea and the ingredients of a perfect storm. Hay, dermatology. In this commentary, Rod Hay highlights the issue of resistant tinea, which is increasingly identified. Originally reported in India, the patients have predominantly been infected by a new strain of Trichophyton mentagrophytes, although some cases are called by the cause by Trichophyton rubrum. He reports that this is an involving global public health crisis, with several unanswered questions. Most importantly, what is the extent of the global spread? And what can we do about it? Paper 5. Asynchronous telemedicine for isotretinoin management, a direct care pilot. Daz et al. Journal of American Academy of Dermatology. Why we chose this paper. The COVID pandemic has accelerated a pre-existing need. The development of telemedicine and asynchronous pathways. Synchronous care requires co-availability of patient and clinician. Asynchronous pathways can enhance efficiency. This paper is important for comparisons with synchronous care. Study aim and design. Patients with acne uploaded photographs and completed an online questionnaire using a portal. Physicians responded asynchronously. Differences in isotretinoin dosage between asynchronous and synchronous telemedicine patients were used as a proxy for clinician comfort for prescribing isotretinoin virtually. What were the main findings? There was no significant dosage differences between asynchronous and synchronous patients, suggesting physician comfort with prescribing asynchronously. Limitations A key limitation for practising physicians would be an increase in adverse events, which was not evaluated. Further studies showing safety of isotretinoin virtually are required. What's the take-home message? Asynchronous isotretinoin prescription is similar to synchronous dosing, suggesting dermatologists are equally as comfortable managing and prescribing asynchronously. Given the increasing strain on dermatology services, we need to consider de- developing asynchronous services. Paper 6. BAD Guidelines for the Management of People with Vitiligo 2021, Elef Thariodou, British Journal of Dermatology. The BAD Vitiligo Guidelines and Algorithm recommend what is generally practised, namely topical treatments, followed by narrowband GVB and thereafter few specialised treatments such as eczema laser, CO2 laser and surgical options. The following are the key notable recommendations or changes. Number one, 
All patients should be screened for antithyroid antibodies and thyroid function due to the high prevalence of disease. 2. For patients with unstable vitiligo that is rapidly progressing, although there's no clear definition of this that exists, consider oral betamethasone, 0.1 milligram per kilogram, twice weekly, on two consecutive days for three months, followed by tapering of the dose by one milligram per month for a further three months, in combination with narrowband GVB in people with rapidly progressing vitiligo, to arrest activity of the disease, after careful consideration of the risks and benefits. If betamethasone is not available, an equivalent dose of oral corticosteroid can be offered. 3. Consider CO2 laser in combination with 5-fluorouracil in adults with non-segmental vitiligo on the hands and feet if other treatments have been ineffective. Apply 5-fluorouracil once daily for 7 days per month for 5 months. CO2 laser once a month for 5 months. The author, authors highlight that this treatment is not widely available on the NHS but can be ac- accessed in a limited number of centres with a specialised interest. Noteworthy cases. Paper 7. Facial discoid dermatosis. Ramatula et al. Skin health disease. What is it? Only recently described in 2010, facial discoid dermatosis causes multiple discrete papular squamous lesions on the face. These asymptomatic but persistent thin pink-orange, somewhat annular plaques, sometimes with scale, don't respond well to treatment and remain stable over years. Reportedly ineffective treatments include coal tar, vitamin D analogues, topical steroids, antifungals, UVB phototherapy, topical tacrolimus, topical retinoids, ketoconazole 2% shampoo, cryotherapy, pulse dye laser, limocycline, acetretin, methotrexate and hydroxychloroquine. However, Amirani et al. reports some benefit with calcipatriol betamethasone combination and there are a few other individual reports of treatment successes. When should I think about it? Recalcitrant thin psoriasiform patches on the face for which differentials would be discoid lupus erythematosus, seboscirrhosis and psoriasis, but without extrafacial disease. Histology is non-specific. Hyperkeratosis, parakeratosis, acanthosis, follicular plugging, with or without superficial lymphocytic infiltrate and pigment incontinence. How do we diagnose it? Authors reporting on this condition consider it to be under-recognised. Clinically, it shares more features with psoriasis, discoid lupus erythematosus, but histopathology may be more like pityriasis rubropropylaris. It's helpful to recognise it, to be able to make patients aware that it's difficult to treat. Ad libitum, paper 8. Timing of introduction to solid food, growth and nutrition risk in later childhood. D. Hollander et al., Journal of Paediatrics. 
Advice to delay the introduction of high-risk allergenic foods such as nuts and eggs have become redundant following findings in studies such as LEAP and EAT, which suggested that the risk of developing food allergies may be mitigated by early exposure. However, official advice from the World Health Organisation and the NHS remains that babies should be weaned onto solid foods at six months. Patients trying to weigh up which advice to follow may also encounter this longitudinal cohort study looking at nearly 9,000 healthy children aged between 0 and 10 years, which aimed to evaluate the impact of the timing of infant serial introduction. They found that serial introduction at 4 versus 6 months had a 0.17 greater body mass index, Z-score, 95% confidence interval, 0.06 to 0.28, P equals 0.002, greater odds of obesity, odds ratio 1.82, 95% confidence interval, 1.18 to 2.80, P equals 0.006 at 10 years of age, and less favourable eating behaviour scores at 18 months to 5 years of age, 0.18 units higher, 95% confidence interval, 0.07 to 0.29, P equals 0.001. The authors conclude that these findings support recommendations for introducing solid food around six months of age. Currently, obesity avoidance is such a high priority that we suspect that studies like this may significantly impact official policies on weaning advice.
Chanson de Matin, Edwin Algar, 1857-1934, by the Advanced String Group, Sir William Perkins School. Isla Galpin, first violin. Hyann Lee, second violin. Miss Townsend, viola. Amelia Christian, cello.